But to do that, we've got to, first of all, look to the Lord in prayer. And so, Father, what we're asking now is that you would equip us to better understand how to take the text of Scripture and relate it to the issues that we face day in, day out, everyday living. Now, people have gone through a wide range of issues this past week in this congregation. For those, Father, that come here and they're experiencing any sense of loss, minister to them at their point of need. For that one who feels incredible aloneness in this world, a disconnect. May they understand where true connectedness is found with you through Christ. For the person who's had bad news delivered, we're praying that the good news of Jesus Christ will overwhelm. What we're asking, Father, is that in this world in which we are affected by the effects of sin, we can see how in this text this morning, the effects of the resurrected Savior are so pronounced that they make all the difference in the world. So again, Father, these minutes together are special. So now on this third of the services this morning, once again, we're praying that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. So we've come here now to see Jesus and, and him only. Praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for those who teach, here's a great opportunity to connect to life as it is. It's a story from the past where Julius Caesar took this incredibly decisive step to ensure his victory over Britain. So you know what he did? Brought his troops over the waters. When they landed, they, the legions marched up the cliffs of Dover. And then, much to their amazement and shock, he had them pause, turn around, and look down. And when they did so, their boats, their ships, were burning up. A writer tells us at this point that Caesar had so torched the ships, there would be absolutely no possible way to retreat. Unable to return to the continent, there was nothing left for them but to advance and be victorious. And when I came across that, what came to my mind immediately was the way in which life operates. You ever felt as though God torched your ship? There's no going back. Under such circumstances, what we've got to bear in mind is that we've been positioned in this world for forward advancement. The believer understands forward advancement means moving forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I want to do with you this morning as we explore this together is to draw out three significant distinctives of gospel advancement that I see here if you've been challenged by this in any way, shape, or form at work, in your extended family, 
where you long to see the gospel advance, but for some reason you're finding challenges along the way, I think this passage is for you. Three distinctives here. The first comes out of verse 1 through 4, and we're going to put it like this. Number one, that as the gospel of Jesus Christ advances, you and I, we should know that close fellowship is critical. You nor I were meant to go it alone. Now, beginning of this one, I want you to notice that there's a journey that's beginning to unfold here, and we're going to put up a picture of this journey in just a second. In verse 1, we're told, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. If you could put up a picture of what that's like as you're entering Corinth today, and this is what some of my family members were seeing as we were on the highway moving from Athens to Corinth. It was about an hour, hour and a half in travel time. Our guide at this point, she turns my direction and something of a stage whisper says to me, and the Apostle Paul walked this. Immediately started to minister. And someone else then piped in, that Paul must have been one tough dude. And he was. God gave him strength, you see, in his journeys as he would move from one setting to the other to set up shop and immediately be part of forward gospel advancement. So we arrive on the scene in Corinth. The next picture helps us to understand a little better of what we were experiencing at that point in the upper level of that science in Greek and the lower level, ancient Corinth, archaeological site and museum, and here in the background, you see how the past and the present are actually merging together. But notice with me now some of the archaeological elements that are tied right there. And picture what the Apostle Paul is experiencing here, where at this moment he has left Athens, and it has been a mixed experience. Yeah, some have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Others were indifferent. Still others mocked. In his autobiographical writing, 2 Corinthians is the most of them, he expresses a sense of, of downheartedness. He's downcast about the challenges that he's just gone through. So you get the, the sense here, this is a weary soul. And he's arriving in Corinth alone. You ever felt that way? It's possible to be alone and not be lonely. It's also possible to be lonely and not alone. But here's the Apostle Paul at this point, and if he's going to launch something of significant advancement, he needs some good Christian fellowship, as we all do. Thank your life group at this point and others. Inch into verse 2 with me. And lo and behold, you and I are told here that he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Notice they did not go to see him. He went to see them. 
If you ever feel like nobody greets me, nobody notices me, nobody welcomes me, welcome to the experience of life. But notice, we are called upon to take initiative. And we can't simply say, I'm introverted or I'm extroverted, therefore I'm capable of or I should or I will, dot, dot, dot. No, instead, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, notice that you and I, based upon the way the relationship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit works, the ultimate example of fellowship. Paul now breathes this in. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He went to see them, Notice he is not passive. Notice that he is proactive. Christians find a way, you see, to be very proactive with life. If you're looking for a way to connect, life groups here are a great way. So many ministry opportunities available. Roll up some sleeves and find a way. But notice further with me that Interestingly, God is using a secular leader by the name of Claudius to be involved not only in global movements, the macro level. Simultaneously, he's involved in micro movements, the local level. And so here is Paul, and all of a sudden, Priscilla and Aquila appear on the scene And God is using the mindset of a secularist, the emperor, to create movements by which all of a sudden Christians are finding one another. Of course, you have the example too in Luke chapter 2, don't you? We've talked about it every so often where Caesar Augustus issues a decree. All of a sudden there are movements And lo and behold, Joseph and Mary make their way to Bethlehem and fulfill a prophecy from the 8th century B.C. Which means then that God is sovereign over both the secular as well as the sacred. He is not hindered by the secular. He will even use the secular to produce the sacred. So if you're experiencing some kind of secular challenge in your own personal experience, realize you've got a sovereign God who has who has the upper hand in life, you see. And he has this way of networking people together. Peanuts comic strip from years ago. Lucy's there, and she's frustrated with relationships. I know everybody in this family hates me. I'm going to go where I'm appreciated. There must be a place in this world where I'd be appreciated. Uh, And then you get to the last frame. And she looks at you sheepishly and then says, "Um, give me a hint. Don't you get the impression people are longing for you to give them the hint? Where can I go and feel welcomed? Where can I be and not feel so disconnected? And so here now, in a new setting that he is not native to, he is, he's from the outside, he is not an insider, like many of us. Here he is, and all of a sudden God's networking him with other people. This is not an accident in time, these are appointments with time. 
So ask yourself now about the surprising appointments that God has been establishing relationally for you. Maybe there's somebody who so, has so impacted your life, broke right into your life experience that you didn't know 10, 15 years ago. But so critical today. Be proactive. Now the Apostle Paul is, and so he went to see them, and lo and behold, in verse 3, he sees, I've got some added means by which to create a bridge. Keep looking for those. Because in verse 3, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Look for commonalities, common life experiences, as starting points not for your own sake, but for the advancement of the gospel's sake. How can we team up together? Question of the hour. Tent maker. That was a word that was used in that time period to describe those who were involved in the work of leather. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's telling you and he's telling me that that will be his means, his basis for impact. That will not be the sum total of his life experience. Don't reduce life to what it is you merely do. Ask yourself, how can I take what I do and create a life experience from it for others to come to know true life? To experience life. So now notice with me how the Apostle Paul builds a bridge for you and for me from verse 3 and verse 4. Yeah, they're tent makers, and now they have joined forces together. So what is he going to do? In verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. In other words, with that as his base now, he's giving himself opportunity to reach those which at this point are religious unbelievers. They're religious, yeah, unbelievers, though at the same time. Be able to discern just because somebody is religious does not necessarily mean that they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. He's using then his skills to communicate an experience with life out of his own life experience. Are you doing that? Well, William Carey was doing it. He was a shoemaker by trade. But he had a longing to reach others with the gospel. And so everyone who came into his shoe shop heard that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And one of his friends took him aside. Biographer now tells us at this point, quote, William, all this talk about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Man, it's ruining your business. Carey responded, quote, my business? My business is to advance the kingdom of God. I only cobble shoes to meet expenses. Can you build that into your own everyday experience? Whatever it is that you do, is your opportunity, your means, your launching pad to build a verse 4 out of the verse 3 of your own life. Where you can reason with others 
about what matters most, communicate with others about who matters most. And so at this point, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. So you're looking for fellowship, but you're not looking for fellowship so that you can be inwardly oriented. You are building fellowship so that you can be outwardly expressive. We are not to be reservoirs of truth. In our relationships, we're meant to be channels of truth. So whatever circle of fellowship you find yourself in, turn it outward rather than maintaining inwardness. And ask, how can this be the launching pad where we gain traction towards kingdom advancement? Because the Caesars of this world would want to remind us that ships are burned for reasons. And it's time to move on. So, fellowship koinonia, the Greek word in your Newer Testament, means not merely sharing something with one another. It also means sharing in someone with one another. So you can share that something and that someone with others. So they can be part of the koinonia of your life. So this is now what the Apostle Paul is doing, and he's using that typical strategy to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. As the gospel of Jesus Christ advances, we should know that close fellowship is critical. The Godhead itself reveals that. But now a second distinctive flows out of this in verses 5 through 11, that as the gospel of Jesus Christ advances, we should know secondly that needed assurance is available. There's going to be pushback. When you're trying to advance with the good news of Jesus, you're going to need assurance. So Silas and Timothy, they arrive from Macedonia. When they arrive, look at the sort of setting they arrive in. Another archaeological picture, if it could appear on the screen. Allow for us to be able to see the setting in which the Apostle Paul was ministering. We stood in that setting and gave ourselves the opportunity to begin to ponder. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be talking about Corinth and 2 Corinthians the next year. There I've got Priscilla and Aquila, significant people in the Apostle Paul's life for advancement. Then what God does, he brings Silas and Timothy along from Macedonia. Here's where they arrive. Now they're converging on a strategic setting of Corinth. Now, Corinth in relationship to Athens would be like New York in relationship to Boston. Athens was something of the academic center of Greece. Corinth was something of the business sector of Greece. Different culture... Same need. I love the flexibility of the Apostle Paul at this point. Where in Athens, in the academic culture of Acts 17, he could reason things through philosophically with the Athenians. 
And in chapter 18, what does he do? He starts a business. Tent making. Which gets the minds going of those around him. This man is entrepreneurial. This man knows how to relate to the culture. Because he's got a supercultural God who's addressing all the various cultures that God is shifting Paul in and out of. Now, ask yourself, where has God positioned me and how can I use what I do and who I know to get some forward traction in advancements? Well, Silas and Timothy, they arrive from Macedonia. Is this you? Paul was occupied with the word. When you've got spare time on your hands, are you occupied with the word? But he doesn't merely internalize it. The internals are meant to shape the externals. So he goes on testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, you and I are so comfortable and prone to simply talk about Jesus Christ, aren't we? But what you've got to bear in mind for the secular mindset and the religious mindset of that time, those were not necessarily connected words or ideas. The Jews were waiting for the Christ, or the Old Testament term for it, Messiah. They've heard about Jesus. Now the challenge is for Paul to be able to create a sense of advancement to make a connection that Jesus is the Christ, the Christ is Jesus. Now again, you and I are dealing with disconnected people, not only relationally, but also when it comes to matters spiritually. They need to connect the idea of the historic Jesus to the ramifications of what that Jesus means in 2018 living. That he's alive. That he's Lord. And that makes all the difference in the world. Now, you think that this is a great opportunity. What I want you to bear in mind is that when you see an opportunity with the gospel, there will be opposition to the gospel. They go hand in hand. Gordon MacDonald writes that in Sepakai, we met Chloe, a blind evangelist. That day the man had walked several dozen miles from his own village to get to where we were to share the gospel in that region. We watched him in action, breathless with admiration for his courage to communicate in a town where the religion of Islam was militantly practiced. A few months after we met Chloe, he was attacked and severely beaten by those who resisted his presence there. His blindness gave him no opportunity for defense. Yet when he had recovered from his wounds, he went back. I've often pondered over the extent of the spiritual passion which drives a man like that to walk those miles, unable to see, to villages that are overrun with Islam, to share the gospel with people and to keep on doing it 
after he came within an inch of losing his life. I mock what's stated next. The beating had not destroyed the passion. Question. What destroys your passion? What levels of opposition have you experienced in your own life that have diminished your passion for Christ, for living for Christ, for talking about Christ? This isn't a playground, this is a battleground. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments. At the end of one of the services earlier today, natural question, somebody posed to me, what did that mean symbolically? Well, in that time period, they knew exactly what that meant. What it meant was, he was saying that the dust that has clung to my clothes, I'm wiping it off because your, this setting will not affect what I do and where I go. But then there's a second symbolic aspect to all this. He goes on to say, your blood be on your own heads. Now, you and I have heard about those who say blood, blood on their own hands. Modern day version of it is wash your hands clean from whatever it is you experienced. What he's telling us at this point is not blood on your own hands, but blood on your own heads. In that time period, if you had blood on your own hands, it means you were involved in the taking of another person's life, innocent. Blood on your own head is that your own life is at risk because of your own decisions. He is saying now at this point, I have communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your blood be on your own heads. I've done my best. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. You've got to smile what happens next year. In verse 7. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. I mean, he didn't go far. Yeah, he, he, he shook the dust off and went over one house. You see, not only then is he going to be ministering to the Gentiles, but as if people are leaving the synagogue, he'll still be ministering out on the streets. God will occasionally reposition you. Maybe not reposition you very far, but reposition you so you can have still added opportunity. And at the very moment when you feel as though I've, I've met some critical resistance in my life, bear in mind that God's not done. He goes next door, and as he goes next door with the intent now, beginning to reach the Gentiles after having ministered among the religious unbelievers in the synagogue, Lo and behold, in verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed. I can almost imagine this kind of encounter out on the street, you see. A delayed response, but a true response. He believed in the Lord together with his entire household. If you track in the book of Acts, you know that Lydia and her whole household, the Philippian jailer and his whole household, and now at this point, what we find here is Crispus and his whole household, 
are committing themselves, and we see the fellowship expanding. There's added networking. And with this added networking, we see still more expansion and advancement And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, as I've said, where there's opportunity, there's opposition. Where there's opposition, there's opportunity. And what you and I need, because this is life, we need assurance to keep on keeping on. And so what God does, he breaks into the nighttime of Paul's evening. And in a vision, verse 9 says, do not be afraid. Sometime, work your way through the do not be afraid of the Bible. What they share in common is that the do not be afraid have to do with somebody being pitted in the midst of conflict. Challenges, opposition to advancements. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Go on speaking. Maybe that loved one, maybe those relatives, maybe your extended relationships thus far seem to be what we'll call gospel resistant. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. And with the richness of the do not be afraid comes the profoundness in verse 10 of the I am with you. Talk about connectedness. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Paul has taught them, he's discipled them. Paul has baptized them. Paul's being told, furthermore, I will be with you. Where does this idea resonate from? Matthew chapter 28. Go into the world, make disciples of all nations. Tells them to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Tells them to go on teaching. And then the, I will be with you always. Now what I want you to see here at this point is that you have to claim the promise of God. No matter what it is you're facing in the oppositions of life. And in the promise of God, as you claim the promise of God, you're going to have a greater sense of the presence of God. As he's recalling his life experiences in Corinth in chapter 1, verse 20 of 2 Corinthians, which we're going to get to, Paul writes, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now, this afternoon, when you're watching the Masters, because Christians watch the Masters, you see, when we get to the 11th, 12th, and 13th holes, the 11th, 12th, and 13th holes at Augusta are known as Amen Corner. 
And there's been some serious quotes that have come from the lips of golfers who've done the Masters about the challenges and the opposition to the terrain to get to those 11th, 12th, and 13th holes. For example, Jason Day, who came in today, I think one under, says regarding them 12th and 13th holes known as Amen Corner. You got to pray there. You got to pray to get around it without it ruining your life and turning it into a total disaster. And the late great golfer and golf analyst, Dave Maher, quote, If you get around the 11th, 12th, and 13th Amen Corner and do it in par, you got to believe in God. Now, Paul is in Amen Corner, you see here. And he's connecting his experience, Acts 18, in Corinth with that powerful statement regarding the Amen to the promises of God and amen in Hebrew literally means it is true. So when you're experiencing pushback in life regarding gospel advancement, remind yourself that the promise entails the presence and it is true on the course of life. And so you take a deep breath here, and lo and behold, it says in verse 11, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I love it. Love it. He's externalizing what he's been internalizing. He tried to do it in Athens. And I want to say, Paul, if you only knew, he left Athens for Corinth, perhaps feeling discouraged. In Athens today is the Greek Bible College. where some former doctoral students with me are now teaching and communicating the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has died for our sins. You see. Okay, now here's what you're doing in the advancements of life. You don't want to be a status quo person. As the gospel of Jesus Christ advances, you know, first of all, that close fellowship is critical. You know, second of all, needed assurance is available. But now thirdly, what I want you to do with me is notice that intensifying opposition is inevitable. The closer someone gets to accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the greater the advancement, the greater the opposition. Pastorally, I've seen it again and again and again. Don't retreat. Don't give up. Don't abandon that person when that person is facing the opposition. So now, beginning with verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack. These, not are, these are not secularists. These are religionists. They made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. 
In the Greek, the tribunal is the bema seat. Maybe a picture appears on the screen at this point. Could you show that picture of the bema seat? We're standing at the bema seat. This is the wording, bema. In our English Standard Version, tribunal. It's also known as the judgment seat. Now, the Apostle Paul has been brought before a secular jurist by religionist unbelievers in the midst of their opposition to the advancement of the gospel. Here he is. Let's get another angle of it from a, a different perspective. There, taken from Walt Kaiser, a former professor of mine, his book, uh, The Archaeological Study Bible. There's the Bema Seat again. We're told here now in verse 13 that before that Bema Seat, they're saying this man is persuading men to worship God contrary to the law. What is fascinating to me is that the same word the Apostle Paul is now going to utilize when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where he's going to inform you and he's going to inform me in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat, literally the bema seat of Christ. See how all this comes together for you? There's the bema seat even today. But now at this point, the religious unbelievers are arguing. They're saying this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But there is what I'll call a lowercase law and an uppercase law. There is a law above the law. They're using lowercase law. The Apostle Paul knows the meaning of uppercase law. They take him before the secularist jurist. Back to the text on the screen. Verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, he's a believer, you know, the secular jurist, Gallio, speaks. The writer Seneca, that time period, tells us that Gallio was an impartial judge who could not be swayed. So now they're trying to sway him. Gallio breaks in with impartiality, stating if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I'd have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to judge, to be a judge of these things, and in verse 16, he drove them from the Bema seat, the tribunal. And I can imagine now the Apostle Paul is saying, God used an unbelieving Roman to protect this believing Jew against the opposition of unbelieving Jews. How do you explain this? That's God. In his writings, John Wesley tells us he was riding down a road one day. It dawned on him that three day, whole days had passed. He'd not suffered any persecution. Not a brick was thrown. An egg had been sent in his direction. 1700s, London. 
So we're told, alarmed, I stopped my horse and shouted, can it be that I'm a sinner, I have sinned, and I am backslidden in my relationship to God? So he gets off his horse and gets down on his knees and begins to pray with God, show where he's gone wrong. Lo and behold, there's this guy on the other head of the hedge, and he hears Wesley, looks over and realizes it's Wesley. This man's been totally opposed to the advancement of the gospel. And so he says to himself, this is my moment. I'll fix that Methodist. Picking up a brick and tossing it at Wesley, it missed the mark, fell harmlessly beside Wesley. And then Wesley, in his journal, leaps to his feet joyfully, exclaiming, quote, Thank God it's all right. I still have God's presence. Unquote. And the Apostle Paul would have nodded. Hadn't God said, and I will be with you, in verse 10, and no one will attack you to harm you? For I have many in the city who are my people. And so, of all people, the secular jurist drives the religionists from the tribunal to protect the Apostle Paul so what they do, hostilities are rising. And in verse 17, you can see the anti-Semitism now percolating within the Roman Empire in this particular region, Corinth. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the Bema seat, the tribunal. Evidently, Gallio at this point was indifferent to all this, remaining impartial. He had walked away from this. You pull all this together then, and you realize we're in a battleground. This is no playground. And the moment you think you've got an opportunity to see the advancement of the gospel, beware, there will be a counter-approach, opposition to the gospel. But you go on speaking. You go on sharing. You go on living for Jesus. And remind yourself that if your boats have been burned, There's a reason. There's no turning back. There's nothing left to do but to advance in service to the king. Let's stand together. So, Father, no matter what the experiences have been the last seven days after Easter, challenges of life, the highs of life, the lows of life, and the, the normalcy of life. Take now what's here in this 18th chapter, a vivid description of what the Apostle Paul experienced, and help us now to build a bridge in 2018. Help us to build a bridge in other people's hearts and minds and souls, and use us to make a difference, we pray. We'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.